So I'm going to begin today with just a few uh, questions uh, to find out really who uh, the sermon is for today. So let me just throw out some questions. If you're here today and you've ever gone to God and asked for forgiveness for something and like meant it and then turn right back around and went and did the thing you asked for forgiveness for in such a way that you felt guilty uh, and embarrassed to ever come back and ask for forgiveness for that thing again. Okay, I don't want to see a show of hands, but if that's you, you know what I'm talking about. Today's sermon is for you. Or if you're sitting here today thinking, I love that I can just come to Solid Rock on Sundays. Nobody puts pressure on me. I don't have to like answer questions. There's no spotlight. I can just kind of come in, come out. Now, one day I plan on being more involved. Like one day I may even get baptized. I may join the church. I may volunteer. But right now I'm not ready for those things because I don't have my life together yet. One day when I get my life together, I'm going to get more involved. But for now, since I don't have it together, I'm just going to come in and sit. I'm going to listen. I'm going to leave. If that's you, then today's sermon is for you. And that leaves us with a third group of people who come in today feeling like they have arrived and they have it together. And there's really no need for teaching on forgiveness of sins or repentance because you kind of have it all together and you've got those things figured out. Today's sermon is for you. You just don't know it. Okay, so I'm going to start there. If you fit in any of those categories, where we're going today is for you. It's a really unique place in the gospel of John. As John writes his gospel, he's made it clear. He wants one thing to be known the deity of Jesus. He wants you to see Jesus, see him as the son of God, believe in him and have eternal life. He's, he's gonna say that in his gospel over and over again. That's why he's writing it. He's not writing it to tell you a bedtime story or to entertain you or even necessarily to put things uh, in chronological order for you. He simply wants you to see Christ as deity. But the passage we're covering today is a really unique passage because there's A, there's a lot of details in the, the, this part of the narrative, but the way John writes it, there are two scenes unfolding simultaneously, and he goes back and forth between these two scenes so that you and I will understand these things are happening at the same time, which will help us better understand the point of it all. And so we're going to pick this up now in John chapter 18, verse 12, keeping in mind Jesus just gave himself over to be arrested. That was last week, okay? Judas showed up, soldiers, religious leaders, Jesus is here, arrest me. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to, to it's either Ananias or Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Just unpack that for you real quick so you can understand the details. So first of all, uh, Ananias or Ananias, he was not the chief priest. He had been before. He was actually removed. His son-in-law, the man who married his daughter, becomes chief priest and is the sitting chief priest. But as you can imagine, father-in-law still has a lot of pull and a lot of influence. He's still in the picture, okay? So what's interesting is this is all taking place in the middle of the night, 
Okay, so this is not your standard trial and, and jury happening here. This is kind of a backwoods hometown justice league, if you will. And they're dragging Jesus out of the garden, arrested, and they're going to take Jesus first to, to Ananias' house, right, just to, to see what, what he would have to do with Jesus, and then to Caiaphas. Now, did you notice Caiaphas was the one who said it's better for one man to die for the people. Okay, that's, that's reverting back to chapter 11, which is significant because in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that's when the tone really shifted from the chief priests. And after Lazarus has been raised from the dead and word begins to spread, the Pharisees get together and like, what are we gonna do with this Jesus guy? He won't go away. And it was Caiaphas who made that comment that wouldn't it be better that one man would die for the people than the whole nation perish, which we, we found that ironic, right? Because the one man Jesus is gonna die for the people to keep the nation from perishing. But from Caiaphas's perspective, if we let Jesus just keep rolling, he's gonna stir up enough problems that the Romans are gonna see this and they're gonna put us all to death. And so now Jesus is on trial before these chief priests in the middle of the night at his house. And this is the place where he's being questioned about the things that he taught. I think it's important we have that scene in mind. Because really what we're after today is to, to see together the faithfulness of Jesus, that Jesus remains faithful in the midst, not only of what will be Peter's denial, but all of these things, this scandal unfolding. Like, Jesus is not just submitting himself to your standard trial jury, let justice fall where it may. He's submitting himself to a scandal here. And so we'll pick this back up then in verse 15. So remember, these are unfolding simultaneously. So while that's happening, here's what's happening with Peter. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. More than likely, the other disciple is John, okay? And so we, we know that for two reasons. One, the details that John, the gospel writer, is capturing, it's like he was there. Like he's gonna even like mention that it was cold and, and Peter needed to get by the fire to get warm, like those kind of details. But John often refers to himself as the other disciple or the one in whom Jesus loved. He never refers to himself in first person or by his own name. So this is how John refers to himself. So more than likely, this is Peter and John. So Simon followed Jesus and so did, the, so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known by the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Jesus stood outside at the door. Excuse me, Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So whoever this other disciple was, more likely John, he was known by the high priest, so he was able to get inside. And he was able to bring Peter inside. So instead of saying like out, outside the house in the courtyard, when you see court, we're not talking about court of law, like the courtyard area, uh, John knew the servant was like, hey, I'm friends with the high priest. Is it okay if my, me and my friend Peter come in? Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So we're gonna go through 
kind of a high, high level view of this narrative today, um, but we're gonna come back to it in, in a few weeks, okay? So, so from a high level view, we already know this is where Peter's denying Jesus. Jesus has predicted that Peter specifically would deny him how many times? Three, so we've already got that denial unfolding. So while Jesus is in the midst of this scandalous trial and he's remaining faithful to the Father's will, even though he's surrounded by evil and scandal, outside what's happening is Peter is denying Christ. These two things are unfolding at the same time. You think about this. I don't know for you how, like I don't know for you personally how it feels when you begin to think about all that happened to Jesus and then you had a part in it. But when I stop and think about that, that that wrecks me. Like I see Jesus on a cross dying for the sins of the world and I'm moved by that. But when I start thinking, wait, those, those part of those sins are mine, it starts to wreck me. And I start to realize that from a sin perspective, I'm partially responsible for the suffering and the death of Jesus. Now, keep in mind, we haven't even really got to that part of the narrative. All that's unfolding is our Savior is standing in a false trial, this scandalous trial, and he's remaining faithful to the Father's will, subjecting himself to this. Why? Primarily to glorify the Father and fulfill the Father's will, but the reason that the Father has sent Jesus is why? Right, so that by believing in him, we would have forgiveness for our sins. Right, so Jesus is doing this to glorify the Father, and as a kind of a byproduct of that, you and I are receiving forgiveness of sins. Like, this is really moving to think about that, isn't it? And it, and it almost gets me a little frustrated with Peter. What are you doing, man? Our Savior, Peter, our Jesus, is inside facing trial, and you're outside? Like, John obviously isn't hiding his identity. Why are you denying Christ? And so it's easy for me to start to get frustrated with Peter. Let's pick up what's going on with Jesus in verse 19. Excuse me, we'll pick this up. Yeah, 19. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him. I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, what's interesting is the way that Jesus is going to navigate his trials from all gospel accounts, he's going to answer all the questions with, with truth. But it's almost as if he also realizes that they're trying to catch him and trap him. Now, why is this important? For me, here's what's important about that. That Jesus remains the one in control here. Right? So there's, there's some things Jesus could say in answer to this question that might qualify for blasphemy. And now these guys are justified from their perspective. Right now, their shame is now, right, alleviated or or relieved in some way just by the way Jesus answers the question. He's not going to do that. Like, it's going to be super clear. Two things as we follow this narrative. One, Jesus is in control. Nobody takes my life from me. I will lay it down on my own accord, and I will take it back up again. That's clear to to, uh, 
to kind of conclude from the way things unfold. The other thing is this. These guys are always in the wrong. They're never justified in arresting Jesus, in the way the trial goes down, in the way that he's going to be sentenced to death. And so here Jesus is answering the questions very honestly. He's like, guys, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get me to slip up. It's late. There's a lot of pressure here. Everybody's tired. You're hoping I'll say something and you'll be able to write it down in a way that will justify your cause to put me to death. I'm not going to do that for you. You want to put me to death? Put me to death. Make your decision and do it. But I'm not going to play your little games. And so this is what Jesus is doing now. Meanwhile, inside the house. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. That's just Bible talk for he punched him. That's how perturbed they are with Jesus. He's not going to play along. So what does he do? Just punches Jesus in the face. And he says, is this how you answer the high priest? And then Jesus answered him, the guy who just punched him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I've had enough of this guy. I can't get anywhere. So now Annas sends him on to the high priest's house to see if he can get anything out of him. Now the progression is going to go from, from Annas or Annas or Ananias to Caiaphas, then to Pilate by the end of the chapter. So you can see Jesus is really going to kind of stand three different trials and, and, and quite a series of questions here. But meanwhile, while this is happening, look at what's happening with Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Okay, that detail was disclosed earlier. John's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So right while Jesus is being punched in the face, Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and he said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off asked. So now we've got an eye count witness who's like, wait a second, you cut off my relatives. Like I was there, you, you're, you were there, right? You're the one. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Now, we're gonna come back, like I said, in a few weeks, and we're gonna deal with Peter specifically. But in this moment, it's, for me, it's hard for me to not get angry and frustrated with Peter especially in, in kind of in full view of what's happening to our Savior at the same time. Jesus is standing false trial. He's being punched in the face. Peter's outside going, no, nah, I don't know that guy. Psh, whatever, I don't know who he is. So I started to get frustrated with Peter. And I'm sure on some level it's maybe easy for you to do that as well. But I think it's so important that you and I take a step back and we look at the big picture. When you go to the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account of Jesus's conversation with Peter and the disciples talking about this denial, I want you to note something here. This is in Mark 14, right after they took communion. He says this, when they had sung a hymn, so they took communion like we did today, then they sang together, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. 
for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And look at this. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away. Who's he, who's he talking about? The other 11. Even though these guys are going to abandon you, Jesus, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Don't miss this next verse. But he said emphatically, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all did what? They all said the same thing. See how easy it is to focus on Peter here? But all the disciples are abandoning Jesus right now. Like John is close enough, he can record the details, but that's about it. Nobody is standing with Jesus, right? Nobody's standing in between Jesus and the guy who wants to punch him. Nobody's there as a witness on his behalf to, to get him off the hook for whatever he's being tried for. Jesus is alone. So this isn't just about Peter's denial. And listen, church, it's not just about the disciples as a whole denying Jesus and abandoning him. This is where it gets hard. I'm Peter, and so are you in this narrative. Jesus' consistent faithfulness in my life contrasted with what? My persistent failure and unfaithfulness. You see that? Like, I'm Peter. You're Peter. We've all abandoned him. In this moment, there is one who is faithful, and it is Jesus. That truth transcends into your everyday life. There is only one who is faithful in your everyday life, and it's not your significant other. Yeah, sure, she's cute, and he can fix a lot of things, but listen to me. There is only one who is faithful in your everyday life, and it's Jesus. That's it. So we read this story, and we typically call it right, Peter's denial, which is happening, but isn't it more a story about Jesus' faithfulness? Isn't Peter's denial just there in the backdrop to contrast with what your Savior is doing for you? We think of it like this, and then we begin to ask the questions, well, man, what in the world happens to Peter? I mean, he's a sellout. He's a coward. He's, a, he's insubordinate. He's unfaithful. But then he shows up in the rest of your New Testament. What happens? It's interesting. If you follow Peter, so, so you have your four Gospels that start your New Testament. We're getting close to the end of John. Right after this, you're going to get to the book of Acts. Acts is what all the disciples do after Jesus has resurrected and ascended back to the Father. It's the story of the church. So where the church launches. It's interesting. Acts 1. All the disciples, except for Judas, they get together in the upper room. Guess who's there? Peter's there. Not only is Peter there, guess who it is who stands up and takes the lead and says, guys, we got to replace Judas. we gotta, we got to get this mission started. Guess who it is? It's Peter. He's the one standing up saying, guys, we got to do this. Next chapter, Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples with all kinds of supernatural power. Who is it who preaches the first sermon? You know, it's Peter. 
He's the one. He stands up. I got this, guys. I got this one. Preaches the first sermon. The church goes from 120. It says that 3,000 were added that day. That's a pretty powerful sermon from Peter. First 12 chapters of the book of Acts. It's the story of God launching his church through the leadership of Peter and John. The only two chapters that don't mention Peter are six and seven because that's about Stephen. That's where Stephen gets selected as a deacon, then he gets stoned. So that's, it's, the focus shifts to that and then right back to what's happening with Peter and John. But here's the thing, Peter's struggles weren't done. It would be nice to say that, okay, resurrection did it for Peter. He's done being a coward. He's done failing Jesus. He's done getting things wrong, but he's not. Chapters one through nine, Peter is struggling with racism such that he won't endorse the Gentiles responding to the gospel, getting baptized and and having the Holy Spirit. Won't even eat with the Gentiles. It's only through this interaction with with the Holy Spirit of God through a dream and then Cornelius, a a Gentile uh, who comes to Peter, that God gets Peter's attention. This gospel message is for everybody. And listen, this was Peter's conclusion after this. This is in Acts 10, so he still doesn't have it right. We're 10 chapters in before Peter realizes this. He says this, Peter, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Now I get it. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Finally, Peter, you're on the right track. I mean, 10 chapters of launching the church, and now Peter's like, oh, this gospel was meant for the Gentiles too. Here's the deal. I wish I could say that this fixed Peter, but he's not fixed yet. Go read Galatians chapter two. The apostle Paul talks about having to confront Peter. Because even though he had gotten to this place of understanding, he would actually eat with Gentiles. But guess what would happen when the Jews would show up? He'd push away from the table and be like, oh, hey, guys, what's going on? And Paul began to pick up on this. And in Galatians 2, Paul says, listen, church, I opposed Peter to his face for that. Because even though he was letting Gentiles get baptized and join the church, and he, was, he was acknowledging that they were now Christians, he would eat and interact with them until some Jews showed up. And Paul says he was being a hypocrite, so I opposed him to his face. So you see that even though Peter's being used by God to launch the church, he's leading in the church, seems to be the leading apostle here, he still does not have his life completely together yet, does he? It's not until Acts 15 when the first council is pulled together from all the churches, it's called the Jerusalem Council, and they get together, all church leaders from all over, Paul's involved in this, And they're like, guys, we got to figure this out. We're not treating the Gentiles the same way we're treating the Jews. We've got this bigotry going on in the church. We need to resolve it. You've got all these church leaders there. And guess who it is who stands up and takes the lead in this meeting? It's Peter. Guys, we need to resolve this. God shows no partiality. The gospel is for everyone. And it was such a remarkable moment that the, the, others, the others who were there were like, we gotta write this down and we gotta send this out to the churches. And they make this official ruling. God shows no partiality. It's, it's Peter who's both participating in that from the wrong side of things, but he's, he's also the one leading out and getting it resolved. So, so I want you to see some things here. 
Going back to John 18, in the midst of Peter's unfaithfulness, it's primarily a story about what? Jesus' faithfulness, which transcends into our daily lives. Second lesson is this. Even in launching the church and being a church leader, Peter still doesn't have it together. And listen, church, and God uses him anyway. God uses imperfect people who don't have it together to do his powerful work here on earth. And the New Testament's gonna tell us over and over again, the reason why God does that is so he gets the glory. It would be real easy to glorify Peter here if he had it together, wouldn't it? Okay, we can forgive the three denials because now he's got his life together. Now he's not screwing up anymore. Now he's not failing Jesus anymore. Now he's not disobeying anymore. Look at Peter. Let's, let's put him on a pedestal. Let's all be like Peter. And Jesus is like, <laughs> Peter the denier? Now he still doesn't have his life together. But here's what's amazing. I'm going to use him anyway. I'm going to use him anyway. Now I want to land in a very specific place today. If you fast forward about 25 to 35 years past the resurrection, past Peter's denial. That's a long time, three decades later, okay? Peter begins to write some letters that get circulated within the church, and this is where we get First Peter. And so we're like three decades now, Peter is looking back on everything you and I just talked about, and he's writing some things. This is where I wanna land today. Peter's writing to the church and he says this, for to this you have been called because Jesus Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled or falsely charged or punched in the face, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So stop for a minute. Peter is reflecting back on what happened to Jesus, isn't he? Falsely accused, all the things that were happening unjustly to Jesus, and Peter is saying, remember how faithful Jesus was? And look at what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd of and overseer of your souls. So here's my question. What did Peter do with his unfaithfulness, his failure, his shame. Do you think Peter looked back at this moment and felt shame? I, I, I would almost have to guarantee he did. If I look at this moment with some sense of like frustration, like imagine being Peter. Fast forward four weeks looking back on this moment. He's talking with the disciples and John's like, hey, I'm Peter, I'm writing this down. You want to fact check me here? And this is what was going on? Like, and Peter's like, well, man, while I was outside by the fire warming my hands, Jesus was inside being falsely tried and somebody punched him in the face. You think Peter didn't feel some guilt and shame? You think Peter wasn't one of those Christians who asked for forgiveness for things and then found himself repeating it again? And it would have been easy for Peter to say, you know what, disciples, you guys go launch the church. I'm gonna sit here in the back row until I get my life together, okay? And once I get my life together, I'll tag in and I'll come help you guys. It would have been real easy for Peter to be 
one of those two people. It also would have been easy for Peter to pretend like his failures were gone and that he had it together and he had arrived, but he didn't. You think about that. What did Peter do with his unfaithfulness? According to what he says here, he took his unfaithfulness to the, uh, to the one who committed no sin, to the one who was reviled and did not revile in return, the one who suffered but did not threaten, the one who bore our sins in his body on a tree, the one who heals our wounds by his wounds. That's what Peter did with his failure. He entrusted his soul to the shepherd of his soul, Jesus, according to his words. And that's what Peter did with his shame. What Peter's saying to us is that because of the grace of Jesus, and I want you to think about this. Ken talked about this in communion. Let's focus on grace, right? It's a key theme in the New Testament. Well, because of this grace that, that Peter experienced, before he had his act together, he still showed up. Peter still took his role as a leader among the apostles. Uh, he remained open to the same message of repentance that he himself preached. He remained open to the Holy Spirit's direction and correction in his life. Peter remained open to his brother's rebuke, especially Paul. And in the end, Peter took his unfaithfulness to the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what Peter did. So here's my question for you. What do you do with your unfaithfulness? What do you do with your failure? I want you to think about that. Let's think about two things that I learned from Peter personally that I would share with you. The first thing is you've got to identify the lies. When you fail, failure is accompanied with shame. Shame is always embedded with lies, always. You call it embarrassment. Embarrassment is just a fancy word for shame. Shame is always accompanied with lies. The lie that you may have bought into is that you have arrived. You have it together. That might be the lie that you've bought into. Maybe you compare yourself to others. I look at so-and-so and they got their life together. I shouldn't be making these mistakes anymore. How come it's so easy for that person to be a Christ follower and, and I've got all these struggles? Lies. You have to first identify the lie. You neither have it together nor have sinned and failed Jesus so badly that he doesn't have grace for you. Neither one of those are true. So here's what you're to do. Take your failure to your savior. That's what you do with it. You take your failure to your savior, the one who has died on a cross to forgive you of your sins. You repent of your sins and you receive the forgiveness that only he can give. But what do you do if you find yourself as a repeat offender? Any, uh, yeah, everybody in the room's like, yeah, that's me. I know, we could just do a show of hands. Everybody raise your hand, we're all repeat offenders. What do you do with that? What do you do when you've asked for forgiveness and you promised? Oh, wait a second, remember Peter promising? What do you do? Identify the lie. I promised last time Jesus won't forgive me this time. That's a lie. Actually, he knew about this time last time when he forgave you. <laughs> you didn't catch him off guard. And then you do the same thing. You bring your failure to the Savior, the one that you've sinned against, and you repent and you ask for forgiveness. The only thing keeping you from doing that is shame and lies. It's not Jesus. Here's where we're going to land today. 
I want you to think about what do you do with your unfaithfulness? Do you sit in your shame, believe the lie, and stay disengaged from what God is doing in your life? Or do you bring that to Jesus? Maybe you came in today and you're tempted to believe that Jesus has given up on you. I don't know if you've been there. I've talked to a lot of people who felt that. I have felt that at many times in my Christian journey. When, I'm, when I see myself as a repeat offender, at some point, I've bought into the lie, I think Jesus is done with me. And maybe you came in today and that's, that's what you were feeling. That's what you're believing. And so the, the, really the main question is, what are you gonna do with your failure today? Are you gonna allow the shame and the lies to keep you from bringing it to Jesus, or are you gonna do it today? As we wrap up in a minute, um, I'm gonna pray for you, and our worship team's gonna come back out. But, but as we do that, we're gonna have prayer partners down at the front. You guys who are regulars here, you know this. That's what they're here for. Um, our elders will be out in the commons. Like, we're available. We want to meet you where you're at today. And I'm almost willing, I will guarantee you, you can't pull one of our elders aside and share a struggle with him that will catch him off guard, that will shock him. Because we're all Peter. Like we've all been in these trenches. And so grab somebody today before you leave here. Share with that person how God's spoken to you today through his word and let that person pray with you and over you. Listen, there's no magical power by having a special elder pray over you. But there is something about bringing your, your struggles, even your sins to one another and confessing them to one another and then listening to the voice of a brother or sister pray over you. It's a powerful thing. And maybe that's where you're at today. Hey, I just need you to pray for me. Pray for my marriage. Pray for this work situation. Pray for this sin struggle. Pray for the shame struggle. Okay, my, my encouragement to you is that you would respond today in however God's speaking to you, okay? All right, so I'm gonna pray over us now. Worship team's gonna come back out. Let's respond. Father, thank you for your word today. And God's so thankful that in your word, it's so easy to see just how faithful you've been to us. God, and, and on one hand, if everybody in the room is honest, God, when we see your faithfulness contrasted with our unfaithfulness, the immediate emotional response is shame. God, we feel embarrassed. And Father, today we acknowledge that with that shame comes a host of lies. So Father, today we are casting those lies aside. We're refusing to believe those lies. Jesus, the same grace and mercy you poured out on Peter, you're here today to pour out on us. So we step into that truth together. Father, we wanna be honest about where we've failed you. We don't wanna hide or, or pretend like it hasn't happened. God, we wanna be honest. We wanna be vulnerable and transparent about our struggles today so that we could experience the goodness and the grace that comes through our relationship with Jesus. So we're praying, God, you'd meet each one of us where we are today. As we stand to sing, as some of us will move around the room and grab people to pray, we're praying that your Holy Spirit would guide this time. We pray it all in Jesus' powerful name. And God's people said, amen.